This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to another edition of Witnesses of History. And in these reports, all dated around the early middle of September, we are looking at different forms of transportation. And we go back to the 15th of September 1784 for our first report, the first manned flight in England. Reported by Vincent Lunardi, who was secretary to the Neapolitan ambassador, and he feared that the crowd would destroy his balloon if kept waiting too long, as they had previously done of the Frenchman de Moray. He made his ascent from the artillery ground and landed also at South Mims, Hertfordshire, to disembark his cat, which had suffered from the cold. A little before two o'clock on Wednesday, Mr Biggin and myself were prepared for our expedition. His attention was allotted to the philosophical experiments and observations, mind to the conduct of the machine and the use of the vertical cars in depressing the balloon at pleasure. The impatience of the multitude made it unadvisable to proceed in filling the balloon so as to give it the force it was intended to have. The process being therefore stopped, I retired for a few minutes to recollect and refresh myself previous to my departure, when a servant brought me a sudden account that by the falling of one of the masks which had been erected for the purpose of suspending the balloon while filling, it had received a material injury which might possibly retard and if not prevent my journey. I hastened instantaneously from the armoury house where I then was, and though I was happy to find that the accident was prevented by giving the falling fixture an opposite direction, Yet I was so extremely shocked at the danger that menaced me and the word I had received that I did not possess myself or recover the effect of my apprehension during the remainder of my stay on the earth. The consequence was that in the convulsion of my ideas I forgot to supply myself with those instruments of observation which had been appointed for the voyage. On balancing the rising force of the balloon it was supposed incapable of taking up Mr Biggin with me whether he felt the most regret in relinquishing his design, or I in being deprived of his company, it may be difficult to determine. But we were before a tribunal, where an immediate decision was necessary, for hesitation and delay would have been construed into guilt, and the displeasure impending over us would have been fatal if in one moment he had not the heroism to leave the gallery, and I the resolution to go alone." I now determined on my immediate ascension, being assured by the dread of any accident which might consign me and my balloon to the fury of the populace, whose impatience had wrought them up to a degree of ferment. Unaffecting, because unpremeditated testimony of approbation and interest in my fate, was here given. The Prince of Wales and the whole surrounding assembly almost at one instant took off their hats hailed my resolution and expressed the kindest and most cordial wishes for my safety and success. At five minutes after two, the last gun was fired, the cords divided and the balloon rose, the company returning my signals of adieu with the most unfeigned acclamations and applause. The effects were that 
of a miracle on the multitudes which surrounded the place, and they passed from incredulity and menace into the most extravagant expressions of approbation and joy. At the height of twenty yards, the balloon was a little depressed by the wind, which had a fine effect. It held me over the ground for a few seconds and seemed to pause majestically before its departure. On discharging a part of the ballast, it ascended to the height of 200 yards. As a multitude lay before me of 150,000 people who had not seen my ascent from the ground, I had recourse to every stratagem to let them know I was in the gallery, and they literally rent the air with their acclamations and applause. In these stratagems, I devoted my flag and worked my oars, one of which was immediately broken and fell from me. A pigeon too escaped, which with a dog and cat were the only companions of my excursion. When the thermometer had fallen from 68 degrees to 61 degrees, I perceived a great difference in the temperature of the air. I became very cold and found it necessary to take a few glasses of wine. I likewise ate the leg of a chicken, but my bread and other provisions had been rendered useless by being mixed with the sand, which I carried as ballast. When the thermometer was at 50, the effect of the atmosphere and the combination of circumstances around produced a calm delight which is inexpressible and which no situation on earth could give. The stillness, extent and magnificence of the scene rendered it highly awful. My horizon seemed a perfect circle, the terminating line several hundred miles in circumference. This I conjectured from the view of London, the extreme points of which formed an angle of only a few degrees. It was so reduced on the great scale before me that I can find no simile to convey an idea of it. I could distinguish St Paul's and other churches from the houses. I saw the streets as lines all animated with beings whom I knew to be men and women, but which I should otherwise have had a difficulty in describing. It was an enormous beehive, but the industry of it was suspended. All the moving mass seemed to have no object but myself, and the transition from the suspicion and perhaps content of the preceding hour to the affectionate transport, admiration and glory of the present moment was not without its effect on my mind. 46 years to the day later, on the 15th of September 1830, we have Francis Anne Kemble's report of the opening of the Liverpool to Manchester Railway, which was the first for which high-speed locomotives were designed. William Huskisson, whose death is described here, was a prominent politician. We started on Wednesday last to the number of about 800 people in carriages. The most intense curiosity and excitement prevailed, and though the weather was uncertain, enormous masses of densely packed people lined the road, shouting and waving hats and handkerchiefs as we flew by them. What with the sight and sound of these cheering multitudes and the tremendous velocity with which we were borne past them, my spirits rose to the true champagne height, and I never enjoyed anything so much as the first hour of our progress. I had been unluckily separated from my mother in the first distribution of places, but by an exchange of seats, which she was unable to make, she rejoined me when I was at the height of my ecstasy, which was considerably damped by finding that she was 
frightened to death, and intent upon nothing but devising means of escaping from a situation which appeared to her to threaten with instant annihilation herself and all her travelling companions. While I was chewing the cud of this disappointment, which was rather bitter, as I had expected her to be as delighted as myself with her excursion, a man flew by us, calling out through a loud speaking trumpet to stop the engine, for that somebody in the director's carriage had sustained an injury. We were all stopped accordingly, and presently a hundred voices were heard exclaiming that Mr. Huskisson was killed. The confusion that ensued is indescribable. The calling out from carriage to carriage to ascertain the truth, the contrary reports which were sent back to us, the hundred questions eagerly uttered at once, and the repeated and urgent demands for surgical assistance created a sudden turmoil that was quite sickening. At last, we distinctly ascertained that the unfortunate man's thigh was broken. From Lady Wilton, who was in the Duke's carriage and within three yards of the spot where the accident happened, I had the following details, the horror of witnessing which we were spared through our situation behind the great carriage. The engine had stopped to take in a supply of water and several of the gentlemen in the director's carriage had jumped out to look about them. Lord Wilton, Count Bathiani, Count Mastusenitz and Mr Huskinson, among the rest, were standing talking in the middle of the road when an engine on the other line, which was parading up and down merely to show its speed, was seen coming down upon them like lightning. The most active of those in peril sprang back into their seats. Lord Wilton saved his life only by rushing behind the Duke's carriage, and Count Mastusenitz had but just leaped into it when the engine all but touching his heels as he did so. While poor Mr. Huskinson, less active from the effects of age and ill health, bewildered too by the frantic cries of Stop the engine! Clear the track! that resounded on all sides, completely lost his head, looked helplessly to the right and left, and was instantaneously prostrated by the fatal machine, which dashed down like a thunderbolt upon him and passed over his legs, smashing and mangling it in the most horrible way. Lady Wilton said she distinctly heard the crushing of the bone. So terrible was the effect of the appalling accident that except that ghastly crushing and poor Mrs. Huskisson's piercing shriek, not a sound was heard or a word uttered among the immediate spectators of the catastrophe. Lord Wilton was the first to raise the poor sufferer and calling to aid his surgical skill, which is considerable, he tied up the severed artery and, for a time at least, prevented death by loss of blood. Mr. Huskisson was then placed in a carriage with his wife and Lord Wilton and the engine, having been detached from the director's carriage, conveyed them to Manchester. So great was the shock produced upon the whole party by this event that the Duke of Wellington declared his intention not to proceed but to return immediately to Liverpool. However, Upon its being represented to him that while the whole, that the whole population of Manchester had turned out to witness the procession and that a disappointment might give rise to riots and disturbances, he consented to go on and gloomily enough, the rest of the journey was accomplished. After this disastrous event, the day became overcast and as we neared Manchester, the sky grew cloudy and dark and it began to rain. The vast concourse of people who had assembled to witness the triumphant arrival of the successful travellers was of the lowest order of mechanics and artisans, among whom great distress and a dangerous spirit of discontent with the government at that time prevailed. 
Groans and hisses greeted the carriage, full of influential personages in which the Duke of Wellington sat. High above the grim and grimy crowd of scowling faces, a loom had been erected, at which sat a tattered, starved-looking weaver, evidently set there as a representative man to protest against the triumph of machinery and the gain and glory which the wealthy Liverpool and Manchester men were likely to derive from it. The contrast between our departure from Liverpool and our arrival at Manchester was one of the most striking things I ever witnessed. The news of Mr Huskinson's fatal accident spread immediately and his death, which did not occur till the evening, was anticipated by rumour. The Daily Telegraph began reporting in 1857 and we move forward now to the 12th of September 1859 and their correspondent George Augustus Sala reporting on the explosion on board Brunel's Great Eastern Steamship. And this is dated the 12th of September, 1859. We had dined. It was six o'clock and we were off Hastings at about seven miles distant from the shore. The majority of the passengers, having finished their repast, had gone on deck. The ladies had retired and, as we conjectured, according to their usual custom, to their boudoir. The Dining saloon was deserted, save by a small knot of joyous guests, all known to each other, who had gathered around the most popular of the directors, Mr Ingram. That gentleman, his hand on the shoulder of his young son, was listening, not apparently unpleased, to the eloquence of a friend who was decanting on his merits while proposing his health. The glasses were charged, the orators' peroration had culminated, the revellers were upstanding when as if the fingers of a man's hand had come out against the cabin wall and written as in the sand that the Medes and Persians were at the gate, the reverberation of a tremendous explosion was heard. The reverberation followed. Then came, to our ears who were in the dining room, a tremendous crash, not hollow as of thunder, but solid as of objects that offered resistance. Then a sweeping, rolling, swooping, rumbling sound as of cannonballs scudding along the deck above, Remember, I'm only describing now my personal experience and sensations. The rumbling noise was followed by the smash of the dining saloon skylights and the eruption of a mass of fragments of wood and iron, followed by a thick cloud of powdered glass and then by coal dust. My garments are full of the first, my hair and eyebrows of the last now. There was but one impulse, one question, to go on deck to ask what can it be to me, the crash was greater than the explosion, and I thought more of a collision or of the fall of one of the huge yards than of an explosion, but my next neighbour cried out, The boiler has burst! On gaining the deck, I could see at first nothing but billows of steam rolling towards us. Then along the deck I saw the engine hose rapidly drawn along, and in another moment dozens of men were seizing it and carrying it forward. The wind was blowing tolerably strong, and when the steam cleared away a little in my immediate vicinity, there came an eddying shower of splinters, fragments of gilt moulding, shreds of ornamental paper, and tatters of crimson curtains. Several gentlemen now exerted themselves in the most praiseworthy manner to get the passengers aft. The danger was evidently forward. A thick cloud of steam there concealed all objects, but there was smoke as well as vapour, and I thought the ship was on fire. As men and passengers came rushing by, I heard ejaculations of fire. 
The boilers! The donkey engine has burst! But these were more matters of question and answer than evidences of terror. There seemed to be an amazement and curiosity, but among the passengers at least, not the slightest panic. The effects of the catastrophe soon became lamentably apparent. One by one, borne on the shoulders or in the arms of their comrades, or in one or two cases staggering past, came by the unfortunate men who had been scalded in the stokehole. The face of one was utterly without human semblance and looked simply like a mass of raw beefsteak. Another was so horribly scalded about the groin that the two hands might be laid on the raw cavity and scraps of his woollen undergarden were mixed up with hanks of boiled flesh. Another I saw had his trousers scalded away from the mid-thigh. His two legs, bare from thigh to heel, were continuous skulls, his skin and flesh hanging here and there. As they raised another man, the flesh of his hands came away in the grasp of those who held him, and he looked as though he had two bloody gloves on. There were some cases of severe contusions and cuts from fractured glass, but curiously enough, not one instance of broken limb. Some of the sufferers were hysterical, laughing and crying in a pitiable manner, when in the hospital or sick bay the agony of some was so intolerable that, all gently and soothingly as it was done, they had to be held down. The remedies applied were linseed oil and cotton wool continuously renewed. Descending to the lower deck, the scene irresistibly reminded me of the interior of the area of Covent Garden Theatre after the fire of 1856, the vast expanse between decks was one heap of fragments. You trod upon one vast sultry mass of ruin and desolation. The nests of sleeping berths, the corridors and staircases were all, save the main one, gone. The cabin with which two friends and I had occupied no longer existed. With all in the same block, it had been blown entirely away. A portmanteau belonging to your correspondent was subsequently recovered from the debacle, but my two companions lost everything they possessed on board. Forward, in this lower deck, you saw the great gaping pit which had vomited forth the fruits of the collapse. It was an infernal region, that horrible hole. The bed of the accursed jacket with torn and jagged ends was still visible. In the hole were beams and girders, planks and rails and gigantic steam pipes twisted double like disused speaking trumpets. The huge iron plates at the root of the funnel were torn out or crumpled up like writing paper. The great wrought iron girders supported the lower deck were curved and bent. The flooring of the deck itself was in part upheaved and disclosed ominous gaps. The boilers had sustained no injury. Weeks' time and thousands of pounds in expenditure must be consumed ere the Great Eastern's proprietors will be able to repair the damage done to her main cabin fittings. Neither ship, as a ship, nor paddles, nor screw, nor were injured. At first, there was an expressed intention to put into the nearest haven, but this idea was abandoned, and the Great Eastern proceeded on her voyage to Portland. We continue that story with a later report headed Saturday, 10.30am. We are in Portland Harbour. The ship is safe, the passengers are safe. Steamers coming from Weymouth and Tynmouth, thronged with people in holiday costume, are making for the great ship. The crowds on board cheer lustily. All the ships and yachts in the harbour are dressed in their gayest colours. This is the ovation we expected and which our ship, eminent constructors, her admirable captain, deserve. But no responsive cheer comes from on board the Great Eastern. Not one joyous voice 
is raised. We have flags enough on board too. It would be better to perhaps hoist a black one, half-mast high, to tell the unconscious holidaymakers that we have need of condolence rather than congratulation, that death has come down among us, and that the Almighty, for his own wish and inscrutable purpose, has smitten this magnificent vessel with appalling, if not irremediable, disaster. And our final form of transport comes from the 15th of September, 1916, as Bert Cheney reports on the first tanks in action in wartime. The British Mark I tanks were American Holt tractors adapted for military use, weighing 30 tonnes and capable of about 4 miles an hour. 36 of them spearheaded the British attempt on the 15th of September to break through on the Somme. We heard strange throbbing noises and lumbering slowly towards us came three huge mechanical monsters such as we had never seen before. My first impression was that they looked ready to topple on their noses, but their tails and the two little wheels at the back held them down and kept them level. Big metal things they were, with two sets of caterpillar wheels that went right round the body. There was a bulge on each side with a door in the bulging part and machine guns on swivels poked out from either side. The engine, a petrol engine of massive proportions, occupied practically all the inside space. Mounted behind each door was a motorcycle type of saddle seat, and there was just about enough room left for the belts of ammunition and the drivers. Instead of going on to the German lines, the three tanks assigned to us straddled our front line, stopped, and then opened up a murderous machine gun fire, enfilading us left and right. There they sat, squat, monstrous things, noses stuck up in the air, crushing the sides of our trench out of shape with their machine guns swivelling around and firing like mad. Everyone dived for cover, except the colonel. He jumped on top of the parapet, shouting at the top of his voice, Runner! Runner! Go tell those tanks to stop firing at once! At once, I say! By now, the enemy fire had risen to a crescendo, but giving no thought to his own personal safety as he saw the tanks firing on his own men, he ran forward and furiously rained blows with his cane on the side of one of the tanks in an endeavour to attract their attention. Although, what with the sounds of the engines and the firing in such an enclosed space, no one in the tank could hear him, they finally realised they were on the wrong trench and moved on, frightening the jerrys out of their wits and making them scuttle like frightened rabbits. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>